0: Boy, I'm thankful for thankful for the Sabbath day. Uh, I'm thankful for a day of preparation. <laughs> I'm thankful to, to, to be mindful of the day of preparation and prepare for the Sabbath. That's just as important as the Sabbath day. But uh, it's good to be here again amongst uh, believers in the Messiah. After all, that is the common bond between us all, is it not? Not? Well, we're, we're all we're all one in Christ. We're all believers in Christ. If I look around, I see a whole bunch of different people. Not one of us in here exactly the same, except for Matthew and Elijah. Usually they look the same. Kim and Kaylin look the same, <laughs> but uh, but not really. I mean, I'm just I'm just playing. We all have different uh, different makeups and different looks, different personalities, different flaws, different strong points, and so on. But that's what makes a full body. The arm doesn't look like that and the foot doesn't look like the neck. Neither do the different parts serve the same purpose. However, they're all unique and beneficial to the construction and the orchestration of the body as a whole, or we might say as a unit or one. Just like each of us in here are different, but we all make up the whole body or one unit, so I'm trying to point out that there is always diversity in the body. Always. Even the body that we have. However, there's not separation within our personal bodies. In other words, my foot doesn't fight my hand when it goes to tie my shoe. And my mouth doesn't bite my fingers when it tries to feed me. If my mouth bit my fingers when it tries to feed me, my stomach might get a little upset. No pun intended. It might get a little upset. Now, my teeth sometimes bite my tongue when I'm trying to chew, but that's just because they're a little overzealous and my tongue's being somewhat lazy about trying to savor the flavor of the food. But um, I say all that just to get you thinking, get your minds rolling about unity within the body of believers, because it's a reality. The church, as one body, is supposed to operate the same way. We're all one body with a lot of different members, but all functioning together for the good of the body as a whole. Purpose. Now, unfortunately, even though there's a there is a design of the church, it has a bunch of non-functional members who don't listen to the rules and the regulations, and it creates chaos. In the church today, and when I say church today, I'm talking about the ecclesia, the body of believers that includes everyone who believes and professes in Christ. In that church, we have many segregated groups of believers, our segregated parties. Those parties can be classified in a lot of different ways, maybe by denomination, maybe by doctrinal methods, various beliefs, or sorts of old traditions, etc., etc., etc. A lot of things can break up the church, but it's still the church, and unfortunately, the separation among it is slowly but surely killing it. It's it's, it's kind of breaking down the church. It's separating it little bit by little bit, and this is not a problem that just all of a sudden started, but I personally believe that it is at one of its highest points of dysfunctionality that it's ever been. Separation within the church has always been an issue, and we've been talking about it a great deal since we have been going through the book of Ephesians, especially the last time I talked. It was primarily about the separation within the body. We talked about the distinct separation between the Judahites and the Gentiles, or the other nations, if you will. And by way of review, in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul reminds the new converts into Christ that at one time they were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by the circumcised, done by hands in the flesh. We talked about how the Yehudim of the Jews called anyone who was not a covenant member the uncircumcised. It was a hate word. It was a term of derision. It would be kind of like a black man calling a white man a cracker today. And we know that white men call black men and other races of people as well all have hate words towards each other. This is a common thing. These are terms of derision. They're hate words describing the way two different kinds of people look down on one another. And so calling the Gentiles the uncircumcised was the same type of thing, a segregational term to puff up the Yehudim or the Jews and to make everyone else feel a little bit lower in class. The Jews thought that they had... What it took to be the right class for salvation. They considered themselves worthy of being Yahweh's people and assumed that their way was the right, was was right, and that unless you were one of them originally or wanted to become one of them through circumcision, that there was no way possible that you could have salvation or be one of Yahweh's children. But Paul says that they were the circumcision done by hands and the flesh. And he really kind of makes a stab right here at him, and he's saying, "Yeah, they are the circumcised, but only by hands, not in heart." Romans chapter two and verses twenty-eight through twenty-nine says, "For a person is not a Judaite who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Judaite who is one inwardly, and true circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, and not the letter." So Paul's just reminding them that they once were segregated too from those who thought that they had it all right. And he also reminds them that before they came to Christ, they were without the Messiah, meaning that they had no hope in salvation. They were full of sin, following the lust of the flesh, living a promiscuous life, and walking according to the world. If you remember a few sermons back, I taught on Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 and elaborated on how we all were dead in our trespasses. We were all sinners. We all followed Satan. And by nature, we were all children under wrath. Mm -hmm. Well, this is just a reminder. Paul's saying, remember when you were without the Messiah. You were lined up in Yahweh's crosshairs. You were awaiting the guns of judgment. Not only that, but you also were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. This means that you were not part of the covenant, Israel. Foreigners to the covenant promise. And they had no hope and they were without the Almighty in the world. In other words, everything that the Judites thought they had in Yahweh, you Gentiles didn't have. You had never even heard the promises. It was foreign to you. You didn't know the ways of Yahweh. You weren't considered Israel at all. This is what Paul's telling these, these new converts. And you basically had no, no hope in the world, period. To illustrate what that would be like, I want you to do something. I didn't know of a country to pick here. So, uh, so I'm going to use Russia. I don't know if there's anybody in here that speaks Russian, but if you do, I'm not talking to you. So, uh, so uh, anyway, I just I was I was thinking about uh, what it might be like to be a foreigner in a land trying to participate in something that was that was native there. And so, um, imagine you've never been to Russia in your life. You don't speak Russian. You don't know the customs. You don't understand the laws and the general etiquette. And you don't know anyone there. So you just showed up and you're trying to get along in life. But everyone there considers you an outsider. That's what these Gentiles would have felt like. Now let's say that the president can give you some relief and teach you the ways of the land. But he doesn't even know that you're there. Well that's kind of the way I think these Gentiles would have felt. Lost to say the least. Trying to understand the ways of Yahweh. But no one was willing to help them. They just had been saved. They just heard the gospel. They believed, but they didn't know the Torah. They hadn't been serving other gods their entire. They had been serving other gods their entire life, but now they wanted to serve Yahweh. But the ones who did serve Yahweh, the ones who knew the rules and the regulations and the the ways that were to be observed, they didn't want to help them because they considered the Gentile people filth. They called them the uncircumcised. Well, that's what Paul's reminding the new converts here in verse eleven and twelve. That's what he's telling them. You once were like them. Paul says, remember, don't forget how you were the people who didn't have a way. Then in, verse, then in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Praise Yahweh. For those of you who went to Russia a minute ago with me, the president has just appointed somebody for us to learn how to speak their language, to learn their etiquette. To walk in their ways. We're not lone wolves anymore. So now you can become part of the nation. In the same sense. Yahweh has provided the Gentiles. Or our nations. With a way to become part of a family household. His family household. He's given them away. And that way is through Christ. And in the same sense. Yahweh has provided the Gentiles. Or the nations with a way to become part of a family household. He's just made them joint heirs. With his son. That's the way he does that. He makes them joint heirs. But Paul says remember who you were how you were looked down upon, but Yahweh saved you. See, folks, there was a lot of hostility in the first century and before between the Judites and the Gentiles and other people, and in some ways, rightly so. See, the Israelites had undergone persecution nearly all the history of the Israelites, all their life. The only thing that they had was Yahweh. They had been removed from their land multiple times. Their families had been destroyed. Ten of the northern tribes were divorced from Yahweh, sent away. They weren't even considered Israelites anymore. And now Jerusalem is being run by Rome, and the holy city that they've known all their life has been taken over and it's being run by, run by somebody else. So all they have is their mighty one, the temple and the little bit of land that they possess. That's all that the Judahites have left. Their customs and the way of life was was what they had pride in, and everything was removed from them. So you can see why they might not be so apt to offer anything to anyone else, especially the Gentiles. However, Yahweh doesn't see it that way. really, all that the Judites had was Yahweh's. It wasn't theirs; they were overseers of what Yahweh had given them. So that's all they had, and just because the Judites thought that they had they held the keys to the kingdom doesn't mean that they actually did. Paul says that the Gentiles used to used to not have these things. But now they have been brought near. They've been brought into that same locale. They've been—they're being taught the same things. Yahweh made provisions for them too, and He did so, courtesy of His Son's blood, our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. So I just wanted to review all that with you, and get your mind kind of stirred in the right place, and, and uh, get you to get you to understand the sense of animosity that's going on and what's been taking place before we move on to how Yahweh makes provision for the Gentiles. Let's um. Let's read verses 11 through 22 in Ephesians, in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, done by hands in the flesh. And at that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, with no hope and without the Almighty in the world. But now in Christ, Yeshua, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He did away with the law of the commandments and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to the Almighty and one body through the cross and put the hostility to death. But when Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the almighty's household. Built on the foundation of the prophets, apostles and prophets with Christ, Yeshua himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in, the, in Yahweh, in whom you also are being built together for the Almighty's dwelling in the Spirit. So last time I talked, we covered through verse 13. So now picking up in verse 14, Paul says this. He says, For he is our peace, who made both groups, one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. First of all, I would like to point out the fact that Paul says he is our peace. Let's talk about that for a second. Remember, Paul's a Jew. He's a Judite. Philippians 3 gives us his credentials. He was a devout Jew. And as a matter of fact, he was advancing among, the, among his contemporaries and was moving up in ranks towards a, high, towards a high position. And he was one of the ones that would have called the Gentiles heathens. He would, have, he would have been one of those guys. And it wasn't until Yeshua struck him down on the road to Damascus that Paul's eyes were open and he could see that his true ministry that he was to have was that of the Gentiles. You can find the uh, you can find his ministerial direction in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13. That's where he's directed. It's towards, it's towards the Gentiles. So Paul's a Jew, but he says in verse 14 that Yeshua is our peace, making both groups one. Yeshua's not just Paul's peace or the peace for the rest of the Judahites only, but rather he's the peace... For both Judahites and Gentiles. He is the peace that both parties need. Or we may say it's like this. He is the peace to all believers. That may be the way it needs to be read. Then the rest of the verse says, Who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. What does it mean that he made both groups one? Keep in mind, both groups are inclusive here of Jew and Gentile, or Judahite and the nations, however you want to see that. It doesn't mean that he turned the Gentiles into Jews. Or vice versa. That's not what happened. It means that he made him, made them one in unity. Because they share the same bond. Meaning that in Christ, that you should act the same. Desire the th- same things. Love the same Lord. Serve the same mighty one. Etc. 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 Yeshua with his blood has reconciled the two parties. He died for both. Remember back in verse 1. The you who were dead. In Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1. The you who were dead. Well, they're the same ones that have become the you who are alive in verse 5. Yahweh, by His grace and mercy, has saved the Gentile the same way He saved the Judah. And that is, that is with the sacrifice of His one and only Son. He made both groups one. Both were dead and both were made alive. All through the common bond of Yeshua our Savior. Yahweh doesn't see the difference in the two. You are either in the Messiah... Or you're out of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Yeshua says, Anyone who is not with me is against me. Or anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So you see, both groups are made one in Christ. They now have the same purpose, the same sense for living, the same hope, and the same promises. Yahweh did this through his son. And the end of verse 14 says that he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. I hope you understand the context and you're seeing the controversy between the two parties because if you don't see the controversy between Jew and Gentile, none of this is going to make any sense to you. However, Paul says he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He, speaking of Yeshua, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And what does that mean exactly? We ask ourselves, what does it mean that he tore down the dividing wall of hostility? I don't even know anything about a wall. What's he talking about? And um, well, to us in our Western mindset, we probably would say something like, uh, well, it's just a metaphor, and uh, he took down the adversity between the two parties. And you'd be right, because that's kind of what took place. But to, but to the reader in Paul's day, they would have understood the metaphor, not only as it being a metaphor, but it having a physical meaning as well. See, in the first century in Jerusalem, Herod's temple stood, and in the temple there were many separating walls many dividing walls. And one of these walls in the temple was a wall that separated the Gentiles from the inner court. Now this was not in the original temple, but Herod rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem between 19 and 9 B.C. And he enclosed the outer court with colonnades. The large, the large separated area was referred to as the court of the Gentiles because any non-Jew from any race or religion was permitted to enter this great open courtyard of the temple area. They could stay in the outer courtyard only, but they were forbidden to go any further than that. They couldn't go there. There are there are separating curtains and walls within even the tabernacle where the high priest could go in, but the commoners couldn't come in. You know, or priests couldn't come, even even the other priests couldn't come in. Only high priests could. But this is a little bit different here. We're talking about a temple that is that we've made segregation walls in this temple, or Herod has, and he's and he's pushed these Gentile people out, and they can come into this outer court, but they can't come into the inner parts of the temple. And there were signs written in Greek and in Latin that were, that were placed all around the temple that actually read this, No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple's own. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. That was actually inscribed along the outer courtyard of the temple. And look, the Roman authorities, the Jewish, you know, they, they allowed the Jewish leaders to carry out these executions. They allowed them to kill them. So when Paul speaks here about a dividing wall of hostility, it's not just a metaphor to, to, to his day Gentiles. That's not, that's not what they see. They don't see it just a metaphor. We're talking about a physical dividing wall that separates us from the inner courts of the Judites. We can't go in there. So it would reign true to these new Gentile converts. They were believers in Christ, but because they couldn't go into the temple that belonged to their mighty one, because of their race, their ethnicity, or their ancestral background, they were excluded from worshiping Yahweh in the inner courts. And the adversity of the church was just, it was just chaos. It was crazy. Paul battles this continually in his ministry. Matthew's been teaching through the book of Galatians. He's been speaking about it for several weeks, about the adversity between Parties of people. In Matthew chapter 23, this was common. This is not something that was that was not common to the people. The Messiah speaks about this several times. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13, Yeshua says this. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people. For you don't go in and you don't allow these entering to go in. In other words, you're not going in and for all those that would make it or will make it, they're not going in either. You're not allowing them to enter. Brothers and sisters, before you get caught up in a doctrine that refuses people the right of salvation, you think about that verse. Think about that verse. Not only are you not going in, but you're not allowing those who are trying to enter to go in. In Mark chapter 11 and verses 17 through 18, he says, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of thieves. Now, is scolding them for buying and selling in the temple complex right here. But my point is that Yahweh's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. That was, that was his point. That's what the temple's designed for, but the Pharisees are not allowing that. Herod's built a wall. All nations can't come in because if they could, the Gentiles would come in. But he says, no, you stop right here. We go inside, you stay out here. And Yahweh says, this is, this is my house. This is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And listen to this. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 56 real quick. I'm going to read the chapter, or the first seven verses of it anyway. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to read it, but you might want to mark it in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 56, starting in verse 1, it says, This is what Yahweh says. This is not TJ saying this. This is what Yahweh says. Preserve justice and do what is right for my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the man who does this, anyone who maintains this, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. No foreigner who is converted to Yahweh should say, Yahweh will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm going to dry that tree. For Yahweh says this, for the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath and chooses what pleases me And hold firmly to my covenant. I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And the foreigner who convert to Yahweh, minister to him, love Yahweh's name and are his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of Yahweh Elohim, who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others beside those, besides those already gathered. See, folks, it wasn't Yahweh's will that his house be divided and segregated. It was a house of prayer for all those of faith. So you can see how when Paul says that the dividing wall of hostility was torn down, it was not just a metaphor about animosity between different kinds of people, as there was, but it would also have had a physical meaning to the Gentiles in the first century because of the actual dividing wall in the temple. All right, back in Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at verse 15. It says, In his flesh he did away with the law of the commandments and regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. What in the world does that mean? You say, now T J we believe in keeping the commandments and it seems like Paul here is saying that Yeshua did away with the law. So I guess you're right. Let's go rob a bank. You know? Or better yet I'll meet you at the local bar when we get out of church tonight and we'll just shut the place down and stay drunk for about two or three weeks and, and uh and we won't work and take care of our kids and, you know, we'll just have a good old time or what about after we get drunk, we'll just, um, we'll just engage in some bestiality on the way back home? You know, we'll do something like that. The law's been abolished. Yeshua did away with it right here. That's what Paul says. Are we so crazy as to think that just because we couldn't uphold the law, that Yahweh then thought it necessary to forfeit his morality and accept us in our continual states of sin? Are we crazy enough to think that? His paradigm has suddenly changed now. And we don't have to practice holiness anymore. We can just sin all we want to. Is that what this verse means? Is that what it means to create one new man from two? Is that what it takes to create one new man from two? We have to abolish the law? Abolish the law and we all become the same. Or, or could it mean that he did away with the debt that was owed to the law, creating one new man from two? Let me ask you this. What is it that the Jews and the Gentiles have in common? Or the Judites and the nations? Have you seen it? What do they have in common? They both are hopelessly depraved. That's what they have in common. The Gentiles are hopeless sinners without a temple to worship in. And the Jews are hopeless sinners with a temple to worship in. That's the difference. One of them has a temple and the other one doesn't. They're both sinners. The Jews have the law, the temple, and the service. The Gentiles have nothing. If Yahweh abolishes the dead owed to the law with the amazing work on a tree stained with the blood of his only begotten son, wouldn't that make both parties equal? Wouldn't that be the work of Yahweh and not the work of either either one or the other? Both are saved the same way. The Jews not justified by his obedience, and neither is the Gentile. Neither one of the parties have anything to offer, but Yeshua has it all. He has everything to offer. In the NIV, it renders it this way. I'm reading the HCSB, but let me read it to you in the NIV. It says, By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. This might be a better translation. In his flesh, he settled both debts. And in this way, the Judahite and the Gentile are one. They've been justified the same way, and this results in peace. Now they would have a common bond. When the Jew looks at the Gentile, now he can't say... I'm better than you, I have the law, I have the temple, I have the services, etc. He can only say, I have Christ, which is no more than the Gentile has. He doesn't have anything else, just Christ, no more, no less. It's that perfect solution. It's just a perfect solution. The law was not abolished, only the debt we owed to it. Now verse 16, this verse kind of, just backs up verse 15. It's saying the same thing somewhat a different way. It says, He did this so that He might reconcile both to Yahweh in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. See, He created one new man from the two, making one body through the cross, all through His Son. Nothing more. Nothing more. The Judites can't boast in the law and the temple. We in here can't boast in our works and what we do for Yahweh. Our righteousness is but filthy rags to Yahweh. It's accounted to him as nothing. The only righteousness that's worth having is that which is imputed to our account. And that, my friends, is not nothing you did. It's just a gift of Yahweh. That's the way that works. So since it's a gift and you didn't do squat to get it, you're on equal playing fields with anybody else that has it that didn't do squat to get it too. We're all in the same boat. You can't boast or brag about what you are or who your family is. All you can say is, I'm a servant to our Lord and Master, Yeshua. Had it not been from him, I would perish. In turn, that should stop the hostility between the two parties, where one thinks he has something that the next one doesn't. Paul explained it back back then between the Judites and the Gentiles, and I'm telling you today that it's still the same for us. There should be no hostility between denominations or between... Those who might not see things exactly the same way do we do. Like like Arnold said a while ago, talking about the new moon. I don't see it exactly the way Arnold does. There shouldn't be any hostility between the two parties. I love Yahweh and Arnold loves Yahweh and I know that about him. I know that about him and I'm I'm doing my best to serve him. The the way that I see it the best. I might be wrong, Arnold might we might both be wrong. We one of us might be right, and that's okay. That's okay because Yahweh knows what's here. Yahweh knows that I'm not I'm not trying to be hard-headed and Arnold's not trying to be hard-headed we're both trying to serve Yahweh one just sit, we just understand the scriptures just a little bit different. that's okay that's the way we should be that's the way we should be. We should love Yahweh together and uh let our hands and our feet work together to you know to use them to better and benefit Yahweh's kingdom. Amen. Faith in Christ is all there is. all have been reconciled to Yahweh in one body through the cross and hostility has been put to death by it. praise Yahweh. Yeah. Let's look at verse 17. It says, when Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. Peace. Now that's a novel concept. <laughs> Why don't we try that a little while? Why don't we try that? That's what Christ did. He preached and proclaimed the gospel of peace to both parties, for both parties. The one far off being the Gentiles and the ones who were near being the Judahites. He, he proclaimed both, peace to both of them, is what Paul says. Do you know that this is a major concept throughout all of Yeshua's ministry? We get this at his birth in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14 records the angels of heaven saying this. It says, Glory to Elohim in the highest heavens and peace on earth to people he favors. Mm -hmm. A universal peace was being sent by Yahweh to earth through his son. That's what was taking place. Yeshua's message was one of peace. In Luke chapter 10, Yeshua sends the 70 out two by two. Sends them out in pairs. And he tells them saying this, He says, say this, peace to this household in every house that they enter. That's what he tells them. And the reason he says that was because he was following He was following the 70. He's going around behind them. But he says, peace to this household. That's what was coming. The last night he spent with his disciples, he said to them, he says, peace I leave with you, and peace I give unto you. So his whole message was one of peace. And so why should our message be any different? Why should ours be one of hostility? It sure wasn't different for the early church. Peter taught a message of peace and to none other than the Gentiles. When Peter was called from Joppa and he goes to speak to Cornelius, you know what he says? Acts chapter 10 verses 34 through 36. It says, Then Peter began to speak, he says, In truth, in truth. In other words, this is the truth, what I'm fixing to say. In truth, I understand that Yahweh doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, The person who fears Yahweh and does righteousness is acceptable to Him. He sent this message to the sons of Israel proclaiming the good news of peace through Christ. He is Lord of all. See, through our Lord there is peace between the brethren, or at least there should be. Brothers and sisters, if you're caught up in a doctrine assuming that you have something that someone else don't have, lose it. It's a doctrine of pride. And any doctrine that creates pride is an unfruitful doctrine. If our Lord... Talk peace to both parties, we should teach peace. If you teach a gospel other than salvation through faith alone, then it's a doctrine that should cause you to be accursed according to Paul in the book of Galatians. The peace that Yeshua proclaimed was a peace to create unity, not separation by pride. Peace should provide a sense of reconciliation between people, not separation. Verse 18, I'll close with this. It says, For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Folks, it's an awesome thing to know that we have access to the Father, our eternal Father, by eternal high priest. We no longer need a Levitical high priest to stand as an intercessor for us because we now have the eternal priest that does, he doesn't die. He doesn't change offices. We don't have to insert a new one year after year. Oh, what a blessing. Let's Let's concentrate on that word here for a second. The word access. This word comes from the Greek word prosagogius. If I'm saying that right, I'm not a Greek student. So prosagogius. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Once here, once in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 12, and once in Romans chapter 5. The word is a superior word because of the meaning that stands behind it. We lose that meaning in the English because of the weakness of the word access in our language. But in the Greeks, it carries with it the meaning of someone who introduces somebody to a king. If you wanted to see the king, the prosagogius is who would take you before him. The idea is that of introduction in the presence of royalty. See, in our world, if we gain access to something, it seems as if we've achieved something. But to rightly understand the word from the Greek, we would have to recognize our inadequacy in and of ourselves. And recognize the need of a mediator. It's a very powerful word in the Greek. Really the way it should read is like this. Through him we both have an introducer. Through Christ both Gentile and Jew. Both have an introducer to the king. We're all subject to the king. Every single one of us. And, and the only way to stand before him. Is somebody be a mediator between us. We're all sinful. He's all holy. And we can't stand in the presence of something holy will be consumed by fire. So we have to be covered with something or we have to have somebody to introduce us. Yeshua is the prosagogist, if I'm saying that right. <clears throat> he is the one who is our advocate with the Father. He is the way. He is the door, if you will. The Messiah understood the concept perfectly that he was the way and he was the door. He actually teaches a whole parable about it in John chapter 10. If you got got your Bibles, turn to John 10 with me. I learned this this week, and I just think it's the coolest thing ever, so I wanted to share it with you guys. But uh, this was a nugget to me. I've, I've studied this parable many, many, many times, and I don't know that I've ever understood it the way that I understand it now. So if you got your Bibles, you might want to take notes. I'm going to try my best to explain it to you. John chapter 10, and starting in verse 1, I'm going to go through verse 17. It says this, it says, I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes, out, goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Yeshua gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. He's talking to the Pharisees here, guys. Verse 7, it says, So then, so Yeshua said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them, and he runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and he doesn't care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I'm laying down my life, so that I might take it up again. Now that's the parable that we all know. But unless you understand it the way I'm fixing to tell you, it won't make sense. So you might ask yourself, why in the world does he use the metaphor of the door for the keeping of the sheep? He says, I am the door. And then he says, I am the shepherd. The two metaphors don't go together, don't seem to go together, but if I explain to you how shepherds worked back in the first century, you might understand it. The shepherds would leave their house with their flock, and they would take them out to pasture. And sometimes they would take them miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. they traveling across the you know local region, but it may be a long, long way from their from their house. And let's say they don't they don't make it back that afternoon. Well <clears throat> over the course of these regions, they've got huts built. Little small shacks, maybe little little be small buildings or something like that. Little shelters with a with an opening on the front of it. Assumably a door. Okay? And when the when they, had to, when they couldn't make it back home, let's say a rainstorm's coming or a thunderstorm's coming or something like that, they can't come back home. Or either, if they've, they've traveled too far grazing their sheep, to bring them back home, they would take them inside this hut or inside this room, and they would put all the sheep inside and they would lay down at the front of the door. That's what the shepherd would do. I have great Pyrenees, and they do the same thing. They will, put, they will put the goats in a barn, and they will lay down right at the front of the barn. They'll do that. Seen them, seen them do it with my own eyes. But but shepherds do this. Shepherds did this in that time. And so they would put all these, they would put all these sheep in the barn, and they would lay down in front of it. So I'm going to reread John chapter 10 right here, and I'm gonna, just going to read through verses seven through seventeen. But I want you to think about who Yeshua is and what he's representing when he lays down in front of his sheep who are in the who are in the the little hut. Okay? John chapter 10 and verses 7, starting again, it says I'm not going to read the whole thing. but Verse 7, it says, So Yeshua said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them. And he runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired man and he doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep but i have other sheep that are not of this fold i must bring them also and they will listen to my voice then there will be then there will be one flock and one shepherd isn't that wonderful isn't that wonderful i hope that's a nugget to you i don't know if you you may have already known that you may have already known that but that made a lot of sense to me this year this week when i when i learned that but anyway Yeshua's the door To access access the sheep. You have to go through him. He is the door. And if anyone enters through his door. He will be saved. He will be protected. He's the good shepherd. Who lays down his life for the sheep. And let's not forget. What he says in verse 16. He says. But I have other sheep also. That are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my, my voice. Then there will be one flock. And one shepherd. Brothers and sisters. We are one body. We all serve. One master. We are baptized by one baptism. Let's not separate ourselves. Is he not Lord of all? Is Yeshua not the Lord of all? Based on everything that we've just read, is he not Lord of all? Is he not the common bond in all who have salvation? Don't look at someone else as if you have some kind of right to select Yahweh's sheep. You don't, you don't get the choice to pick. Don't look at other people as if you can pick Yahweh's sheep for him. You're not Yahweh, and you don't have the right to decide whom He can offer His gift of salvation to. If someone passes through the right door, will he not be saved? He says, all that come in through me will have salvation. We'll talk a little bit more about the, the unity in the body the next time I teach to finish up chapter 2 of Ephesians. But until then, I hope you'll read and reread and this section and, and, uh, that we've been covering. I hope that you'll seek and search the Scriptures. And hope that you can find peace that Yahweh offers through His Son and our Messiah. Put all the hostility to death. Praise Yahweh for His peace. All right, let's stand and pray. Yahweh, Father, thank You for um, Your Sabbath day. Father, thank You for the heavenly event that took place today. I don't understand the significance of, uh, of the eclipse, I guess, but... Yahweh, I know it's your doings because you control the heavens, and so it must be must be wonderful to you, and so it's wonderful to me. Father, I love you, and I thank you for all that you've done. You've been an awesome, mighty one to me, Father. i thank you. For, I thank you for the door that uh, that you provided, Father. I pray that you'd let us enter through that door, so that we may be saved in Him and saved for you, Father. I just uh, I give you all the praise and honor and glory. He's an awesome shepherd. He's a wonderful Savior. You're a wonderful Savior, Father, and I just uh, I lift Him up today, and I lift You up, Father. Give You praise and honor and glory in all things, Father. We give You uh, give You all this, and we ask all of it in Your Holy Son's name. Amen.